Chapter 46 of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vacation Rambles The expansion of our towns and cities is ruining much that the naturalist loves. London has devoured many a pleasant wood and field. A little more than a hundred years ago, Queen Square, hard by Southampton Row, was thought to be a beautiful abode because it commanded an unbroken view of Hampstead and Highgate. The naturalists of the first half of the 19th century looked upon Laystonstone, Tottenham, Highgate, Sydenham, and Blackheath as unspoilt country, where nature could be explored without hindrance. Our busy provincial towns grow with almost equal rapidity. I know of a little valley near Leeds, where in my own boyhood rare marsh plants and curious insects were to be found in undisturbed profusion. That valley is now crowded with forges, dye-works, and back-to-back -back houses. Near Sunderland was once a delightful dean, where a bright stream flowed into rock pools, which filled with seawater at every tide. A singular mixture of marine and freshwater animals used to people these pools, but when I was taken to see them by their discoverer, great ironworks smothered the place with ashes and smoke. One could relate such experiences at wearisome length, and to the naturalist, as to some few others, these changes are pure loss. He cares little for unexampled prosperity and increase of rateable value. The beauty and wholesomeness of human life, which he does care for, are not enhanced by such growths as these. Even the industrial development of the 19th century, though it has brought upon us cruel losses, has its compensations, and it is the part of the philosopher to make the most of them. The compensation that I have now in mind is the vastly increased facility of locomotion which scientific discovery and commercial enterprise have placed at our command. As for the defacement of nature, if any words of mine could bring remorse upon the offenders, they should not be wanting, for I am persuaded that very much of this damage is needless. The Waysland between Antwerp and Ghent, densely populated and busy with machinery, is much of it fruitful orchard. In Saxony, only one percent of the soil is unused. The output of cotton, linen, leather, and machinery is so large that this little country is one of the chief manufacturing districts of Europe. Yet it is a pleasant land, a land of cornfields and fruit trees. I maintain that the manufacturer has no more right to trample underfoot all that does not help him to make a profit than has the man who is in a hurry to catch a train to push rudely aside the people who stand in his path. A little thought, some faint preference for what is beautiful over what is ugly, would spare us many of the worst injuries that are being done to our country. In the 17th and 18th centuries, besides those who traveled to earn money, only the wealthy, or those who had a passion for travel, visited any foreign land. There were plenty of young noblemen who made the grand tour with a tutor, visited France and Italy, and returned to show, quote, how much a dunce has been sent to Rome excels a dunce that has been kept at home, unquote. Here and there, too, there might be found such a singular example as that of Descartes, who, though only moderately wealthy and weak in health, contrived to visit every part of Europe which offered anything to a curious observer. Descartes wandered alone and almost furtively, for hardly more than a single friend knew where he was at any time. He particularly loved the pageant and would travel far to see a coronation. It is very remarkable that a man of his tastes, who had lived abroad half his life, should nowhere speak of any detail of foreign life, nor of any city or building which he had visited. That he should make no mention of striking scenery, although he had crossed the Alps and had occupied himself with the avalanches, and other natural wonders of Switzerland, is less remarkable, when we consider what the readers of his day look to find in any solid book. 
the descriptive traveler did not then exist, or used his talent only to gratify the curiosity of personal friends. Naturalists were among the first to discover how much they might enlarge their knowledge by travel. John Ray and his pupil Willoughby made many and long peregrinations, both at home and abroad. Linnaeus explored Lapland, resided long in Holland, and visited England. His pupils explored every land accessible to them. Sir Hans Sloane diligently collected the plants of Jamaica. Sir Joseph Banks, though a wealthy Lincolnshire squire, endured the hardships inevitable to a circumnavigation of the globe with Captain Cook. All these were men of exceptional energy or exceptional opportunities. The man who had his bread to earn was in the 18th century generally forced to remain at home round the year. Dr. Johnson saw the sea for the first time when he was 56 years old. His wife never saw it at all. George III, at 34, had never seen the sea, nor been 30 miles from London. I have described so much, said Richter, yet I die without having seen Switzerland or the ocean. Steam now makes it possible for many a busy man of small income to escape once a year from the cities which the love of gain has made unnecessarily sordid, and to visit lands which our fathers knew only by report. It is now not difficult for anyone who has a long vacation to visit every country of Europe. Sir Henry Holland did more than this. During a busy professional life, he was a West End physician in large practice, he contrived to visit every capital of Europe, most of them repeatedly, to make eight voyages to the United States and Canada, to visit the West Indies, to travel four times in the East, thrice in Algeria, twice in Russia, besides making journeys to Iceland, the Canaries, and many other places far from home. The wonder is a little explained when we are told that he lived to 85, that he enjoyed a large income during nearly the whole of his life, and that he was able to leave London for two months every year, because nearly all his patients left London too. But the record, after all allowance has been made for favoring circumstances, is a remarkable proof of energy. Sir Henry had his reward. Foreign travel, joined to a hearty love of his kind, and a natural power of engaging the attention of noteworthy people, secured to him a kind of leadership in a very exacting society. I am almost sorry to have mentioned Sir Henry Holland's long career of foreign travel, for the excursions which I want to stimulate are more particularly such as men of small means, uncertain leisure, and length of days not greatly exceeding threescore years and ten can hope to enjoy. A man who accomplishes one-tenth of Sir Henry Holland's wanderings may be greatly exhilarated and enlightened by his foreign experiences. To break through the routine of home life, to taste unaccustomed dishes, to hear unfamiliar tongues, and desperately, it may be, to attempt to express our views or our wishes under every disadvantage of vocabulary, grammar, and accent, is one way of washing out the starch of respectability. It makes us more human, and gives us a brief chance of that independent activity which is too often impossible at home. The traveler is lucky indeed whose attention has been called betimes to natural phenomena. Any kind of nature knowledge will brighten a ramble abroad, but according to my experience, geology and botany are best of all. The geological structure of a new country can be in some measure appreciated, though of course it cannot be set down during a rapid traverse. Much else turns upon geological structure, which governs not only the elevation of the land, its accessibility, the nature and position of the commanding points, but even in some degree the genius and temper of the inhabitants. History is largely affected by geography, and geography in turn by rock structure. Geology abounds in the kind of questions to which the traveler can profitably bend his mind. 
questions not too special or minute for a man whose thoughtful hours are few and precarious, and who can carry few books along with him. A decent provision of maps, such local descriptions as can be picked up in the nearest city, a geological hammer, and if possible a practiced eye, are the chief requisites. They are all portable. Let a man survey the Campania from the windows of the Vatican, if he can get no nearer. He will wonder at the little towns, each perched upon its own steep and isolated hill, that start out of the sea-like plain. It is geological observation which tells him how these hills came to be there, and without some tincture of geology, the hills themselves, the historical incidents which belong to them, and even the paintings of Italian masters in which such hills are often delineated, may fail to impress themselves adequately upon our attention. Or let a man visit Sweden and observe the rounded knolls, great and small, which are not mere heaps of loose material, but bosses of solid rock, the perched boulders, the innumerable lakes, the long mounds of sand and gravel, and then ask himself why this kind of landscape, unknown in southern lands, should pervade large tracts of Sweden, Scotland, Ireland, and New England. Geology answers the question, which else would remain totally dark. Why do we rarely find in a northern land splintery peaks like those of the Dolomites, or sand-worn cliffs like those of Arabia? Here again, it is only geology which can tell us. Botany does more for the traveler than zoology, partly because the range of plants depends more obviously than that of animals upon geological structure and soil, and also because plants affect the scenery in a way that animals can never do. An inquiring naturalist will raise deeply interesting questions of plant distribution from very limited excursions, whereas it is only when studied on the continental scale that the geography of animals has proved instructive. But all branches of natural history are good. The birdman, the insect man, the naturalist of any good sort, I mean any naturalist who inquires, will find in every foreign land abundant opportunity of carrying his studies farther and giving them a wider scope. The reader has very likely taken his own line and knows perfectly well what he wants to work at the next time he has a chance of visiting an unfamiliar country. If so, I will wish him good luck and hasten to stand out of his sunshine. There are other tourists who are eager but totally inexperienced, and here and there such a one may be glad of hints which his forerunners have found profitable. To a young tourist with a taste for geology, who is about to visit Switzerland for the first time, I would say, do not waste your leisure and strength by speeding over a great tract of country. Take one river valley and work it well. There is none better than the upper R Valley for a first study. Begin at Meiringen, examine the Arschlucht as an example of what running water can do. Work your way up to the Grimsel and then photograph the glaciated rocks till you have learned something of what moving ice can do. The Ober R Glacier will teach you nearly everything that one glacier can teach. Afterwards, you can go on, if you are enough of a mountaineer, and cross the snowfields upon which the Schreckhorn and Finsterarhorn look down. That one valley will teach you more than all Switzerland could do if you were to move over the ground, as so many do at the rate of 40 miles a day, in a personally conducted party. To find out your own way, to puzzle out your own problems, and to work at your own rate are the first elements of productive investigation, whether you are trying to master the scenery of Switzerland or a new science. Of course, there are many people who find the only true method hopelessly slow. Switzerland in three weeks, chemistry in 20 lectures, is the program for them. They will learn in time that lasting knowledge is not got by such facile expedients. 
The rapid method is inviting enough at the outset. We go in a party because we love society. One of the party knows the way, while the rest do not. What then can be more natural than that he should lead? One knows the elements of a science of which the rest are ignorant. What more natural than that he should speak while the others listen? The answer is in each case the same. Knowledge that we get without personal effort is knowledge in appearance only. It strikes no root and soon withers. Most of the people who visit Norway do just what the naturalists should avoid. They steam up one fjord after another, smoke twice as much as they do at home, eat heavy and frequent meals with no better intervals of exercise than are possible on an encumbered deck, vary the steamer only by driving from one hotel to another, and are guided all the way either by Bidecker or an experienced friend. This may be tolerable for the first week, but the second week is very like the first, and one fjord very like another. It is always somebody else, and not the tourist himself, who does whatever is done, manages the engine, manages the horses, cooks the dinner, chooses the route. A life like this has much in common with what I maintain to be the very poorest recreation that has yet been hit upon, watching a football match. To stand in a wet field on a winter day and see men play a match is an occupation that no man of any spirit could possibly endure. Let us do something or other, exercise either our brains or our muscles, and take our part in the fun. If any naturalist wishes to break away from the relaxing and too commodious fjords, but does not know where to go, I can put him in the way. An excellent alternative, more practicable than others which I could name, is to visit Kongsvold. Kongsvold is nothing more than a post-house on the Great North Road leading from Christiania to Trondheim. There, in the sight of the Snohetta, he will find hills, wild gorges, and such botany as it is likely he has never enjoyed before. The first glance at Knudsho, a hill close at hand, tells us that we are in a new country. The rocks are of white quartz and black augite. The vegetation consists of patches of sulfur yellow and a green so dark that at a little distance it looks black. When you come closer, you make out that the yellow indicates dense growths of lichens, the so-called reindeer and Iceland mosses, while the dark patches are clumps of dwarf willows, dwarf birches, juniper, and alpine bearberry. The delightful labors of the mountainside are sweetened by the simple hospitality of the station and by the friendly talk of the botanists, mostly Swedes, who assemble there every summer. I remember with special pleasure the conversation and help of the aged botanist C.J. Lindbergh, whose latest visit to Kongsvold I happen to share. The difficulty of language is the only one that embarrasses the Englishman. I have been reduced at times to bringing out the Latin of my boyhood, such Latin. Who that has ever rambled over the Dorva field would consent to go back to the coast steamers and the stream of tourists which flows along the fjords like water in pipes. Many of us are too busy to spend our holidays abroad. There is plenty to see at home, and you can make all that you see profitable if you will only form the habit of putting and answering questions for yourself. When you visit a castle set on a ridge, such as Belvoir, Richmond, Beeston, or Bamborough, Ask yourself how the ridge comes to be there. When you visit the Roman wall, look out for the natural feature which determined the choice of that particular line, and possibly gave the first hint that a fortification might be easily made there and easily defended. Do not sterilize your geological or natural history rambles by mechanical occupations such as aimless collecting or the writing out of lists of species. Half a dozen questions answered, nay, half a dozen questions attempted, 
may be more to the purpose than notebooks crowded with unproductive facts. End of chapter 46